Hi, I'm Brian Wise, editor of Rhythms Magazine. Thanks for joining me in this series of interviews recorded during Bluesfest 2019. In this triple header, I talk to three genuine Australian legends, Russell Morris, Richard Clapton and Joe Camilleri, who performed on the first night of the festival on the Jambalaya stage, where the lineup also included Arlo Guthrie and Mavis Staples, with Russell, Richard and Joe following. Talk about a night of legends. One of the things that struck me about these three Australian icons that I'm talking to is that they are still making new music. You'll hear Russell talking about his new album and the 50th anniversary of The Real Thing, Richard revealing a new, formerly secret project, and Joe discussing his 49th album and his 18th with The Black Sorrows. I'm Brian Wise. I'm at Bluesfest in Byron Bay, sitting with Russell Morris, who has a brand new album out that's shot into the aria charts i think it's at number 12 russell yeah it's number 12 which is lovely and first um, weekend first weekend yeah. with a bullet with a bullet what? you know with, but which way is the bullet going to kill it or is it going to keep going is it going to, who knows yeah we'll have to wait till next week have to wait till next week yeah easter might affect things a little bit you might sell a few here at blues fest well i'm hoping you know i'll, I'll I'll be yelling out and screaming to get people to come to the tent, yeah. There are probably going to be 20,000 people a day and you should have a bit of a stock of the album. Well, I hope so. I think it'll be up there and uh, hopefully if people hear what we do today and like it, I think they might go and buy it, so... Before we talk about the new album, let me talk about your performance here a couple of years ago where one of the interesting things about the set was you opened the set and I think for the first 40, 45 minutes you played all new songs. Unusual approach some might say but it worked, people loved it, they obviously knew some of the songs from the trilogy of albums, you're going to do that again this weekend? Yes, but they won't know the new songs that much. Um, I have always been reasonably brave and I feel that if I've committed to something if I've decided to do something, like um, I really just have to jump in and swim. And if if people like it, that's fantastic. If they don't, I've, I've got to I've got to do 100% commitment. I will play some of the other stuff, yeah. but initially it'll be like in your face for I think the first three songs maybe, and uh, they're all the new stuff off the um, brand new album. Yeah. So when, when you go out on stage and you start with the new material, how do you judge the mood of the crowd? Because I'm sure there are some people who are there and they say, oh, we want to hear the hits. But the th- one of the things that surprised me, it must be a very knowledgeable audience here, and they accepted all the new songs, I guess because they knew you were going to play some of the other songs as well. Yeah, I, th- I think they hope that you're going to play some of the old stuff. Um, you tend to look at their eyes. If their eyes are glazing over... Or if they're looking around, you tend to go, what do I do? Do I change the set or do I just keep swimming upstream? You know, so I very rarely on a big show like this would change direction because um, I've I've got it set and I just figure, well, I'm just going to swim into the treacle and see what happens. With a small club, I would probably change things on the on the trot on the run just go hang on guys we're going to do this instead of that and this instead of that it's interesting at the moment looking at the charts and you've gone into the charts with an album and joe camilleri um, 
went into the charts last week with his latest album, Citizen Joe. Oh, yeah. it, it's a refreshing change, Citizen John, should yeah. I say. Yeah. It's a refreshing change to see newer albums by older artists there rather than just collections of greatest hits. It is, it's great. I, w- I was really excited for Joe when that went in. I thought, gee, that's great because I, I love his album cover. I think it's a mighty cover. And Joe is a, such a prolific writer. I think it's his 49th album. And um, he's a great talent and uh, really, really good. And uh, he deserves it. He deserves those accolades. I'm at Blues Fest at Byron Bay. You can probably hear a little bit of the noise in the background. Noise. Music in, in the background. The war and treaty have started on the Delta stage. I'm going to race over and see them soon. And it's a bit of a feast of music here at Blues Fest. Russell's, uh, Russell Morris, you're a bit of a veteran of Blues Fest now. I'm looking forward to seeing your performance. It's kind of a... Australian, I hate to use the word, heritage evening tonight, isn't it? It is. I was surprised when I looked at the lineup and I thought, it doesn't make sense. Why don't we just, why don't put Joe on one night, Richard on another night, and myself on another night? But I think they have their own agenda here and they probably thought, yeah, well, let's make it an Australian night. And they've probably, that's what they, they had in their thinking. Whether it works, who knows? We'll, we'll soon find out. Well, there's certainly a collection of hits amongst those three artists. There? Yes, there is, and, and uh, we're all pretty good friends, and particularly Richard's a great mate of mine, so I'll be looking forward to seeing Richard play, and uh, that the guys in the band are, re- are really good friends of mine as well, so uh, it'll be a bit of fun. Let's talk about the new album, Black and Blue Heart. Surprisingly for some, perhaps, after the trilogy, produced by Bernard Fanning. How did that association come about? Well, I was, I'd wrung myself out like a, a wet dish rag because I'd written all the Australiana songs that I'd wanted to write and I just wrung them all out of my body and those albums were virtually a year apart so I, 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 didn't, I didn't even stop to breathe because I had the stories and I knew what I wanted to write about and once I'd done that, I was like a blank blackboard and I couldn't write for a while. Everything was gone, I'd just wrung it all out. And slowly, uh, it took about a year, I think, and I squeezed a song out. And I was trying to write rootsy, bluesy stuff, and I thought, this is different, this is not bluesy. And I let it go for a while and then started to write a few more. And then I got to the point I, I let it go. And then I thought, well, it's time to write. I feel I could feel it coming, I'm going to write now. And I just started writing and writing, and I. Uh, spoke to Michael Gadinsky who wanted me to sign to their label. And their new label? The new label, yeah, Bloodlines. Bloodlines. Yeah. And um, I said, Michael, if you want me, I need your best song guy, someone who's going to work with me on every single song and choose them because I don't want to make any mistakes because I get too close to them. And Bill Page came on board and so I would write two songs a week, send them the bill and he'd go, no, no, two more songs, yes, no, no, yes, 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 no. And we we sort of gleaned it down. I think we ended up with about uh, 18 songs. And I was going to record in Melbourne. We were talking about finding different producers. And I ran into a violinist friend of ours who plays with Bernard Fanning. And she said, why don't you talk to Bernard if you haven't decided on a record producer yet? And I said, oh, Bernard wouldn't be interested. And she said, 
I think he might. You know, why, why don't you ring him? I said, no, 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 you ring him. So she rang him and he rang me and said, listen, why don't you come down and meet Nick Deer and myself and bring the songs? So I went down, gave them the songs and uh, said, uh, please don't take this as a project. I really, at my stage in life, I need you to be really committed and I need you to really believe in what these songs represent. And uh, if you do, fine, that'd be great. And they said, how do you want to do the album? I said, I want an edgy album, blah, blah. I want it to be cross between sort of powder finger, uh, fingery, you know, with that those guitar sounds and Oasis type of style. I said, there'll be some ballads. And I said, but don't ring me and say yes if you're not 100. And they rang me two days later and said, we've listened to the songs and we love it. We think it's going to be great. So away we went. I have to say that it's not atypical of what we would think a Russell Morris album would be like. In fact, when I heard the first track from the album, I didn't realise it was you, and uh, which in some ways might, might be a good thing. It's a completely different sound to the three to the sound on the trilogy, isn't it? It is a very different sound. Uh, that first track was a bit of a uh, hat tip to the '60s, and it was like uh, we tried to do it sort of like a Steppenwolf song because I love used to love Steppenwolf so we had that distorted Hammond and I was also experimenting within myself lyrically I in and when I did the blues albums um, we were putting them down the producer said there's too many words there's too many words you have to ch chop some of them out and I didn't want to but we did we chopped them out and when I came to this album I thought no I want it to flow like you're chipping out a jug of water I want the words to be really busy and that first track is very very busy and the words just sort of run very quickly together and almost sounds like you're going to run out of time in the bar but uh, that was the what the style I wanted to produce on this album I wanted to have that running sort of uh, lyrical style. Russell do you get a chance to see any of the other acts that uh, are on stage? Yes every time I've been here I've, I've been and wandered and looked at so many. I've seen so many great acts here, from Tom Jones to um, uh, Brian Wilson, Vintage Trouble, sensational. Um, Steve Earle I saw here. I've seen so many great, great acts. It's a Rag and Bones band. Rag and Bones. Fan yeah. Fantastic. And I've I've really loved working here because it gives you a great opportunity to catch up with different bands and see them. And some of the Australian bands. Um, the Backsliders I saw here and just loved you, like, what a great band, you know. Now, before I let you go, I have to mention that it is almost exactly to the month, 50 years since the release of The Real Thing, which seems pretty incredible. You, you could have had no idea when you recorded it, although I would imagine that it sounded pretty sensational, you would have thought after you recorded it, because it was such a groundbreaking single but you would have no idea back then that 50 years later Russell Morris's career despite a few troughs in the road as happens to everybody is still healthy and probably healthier than it's been for decades yeah that's that's a hundred percent true I um, really thought it'd be all over by the time I was about 25 or 26 because I thought I'd be too old and I would go back to economics and just doing doing that. I never never went back to economics. And uh, 
the song, actually I heard it the other day, um, and I was a- absolutely surprised. If you get to hear it again, Ian Meldrum was such a great producer. The bass sound on that is such a sensational bass sound. And the bass sound he also got on Hush that he produced, I noticed a very, very similar and quite prominent, quite prominent. Like you listen to a lot of records today um, and the bass isn't in your face as much as Ian put it. Ian had the bass right in your face there. So 50 years on? 50 years on, yeah, it's almost like someone else's life. And uh, it flashed, it didn't flash before my eyes, it sort of disappeared into the ether, but it was almost, some people remind me of things that I've done and I have no recollection. Hey, thanks for joining us and I look forward to seeing you here at the festival this evening. Brian, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thursday and I'm lucky to be sitting with Richard Clapton who's going on stage this evening uh, along with a few other Australian legends following you. Oh well um, yes just my normal band but um, John Farris in excess is drummer uh, who's done lots with me. Uh, Gee I'm I'm trying to think how many albums Johnny's played on of mine. A lot. Four or five albums of mine. So it's pretty easy. It's great don't need to rehearse. But, um, so that'll be great. And then later on, following you, Russell Morris, Joe Cavalieri. Yeah. Mm-hmm, correct. Yeah. yeah, so that'll be great. It's, uh, well, Russell's kind of celebrating 50 years since the real thing, and mm-hmm. Joe's been around almost as long and recording mm-hmm. careers about the same mm-hmm. as yours. There's a certain longevity that uh, you all share. Mm. I guess that has to be down to having written some great songs. Uh, I, th- I think it goes a bit deeper than that. I, I truly think um, some people are just born to play, and so when when you when you're motivated by um, have pure music motivation, it's kind of just what you do. And because um, I remember, I remember there was a great there, uh, 
when I was a kid, I read a great interview with Lobby Lloyd. And you know how, how Lobby always looked like a mess, a shambolic mess. And the journo said, have you ever thought of, you know, tidying up your image? And Lobby goes, I don't give a fuck, man. I just love to play. I know I don't give a fuck if I look like a bum. I just live to, live to play. I saw Jerry, Jerry Garcia say something very similar too. So is that why you, you felt all these years? Is that just something that's kept driving you? Yeah, and I've been, like, I've been pretty blessed because, you know, I, I, um, gee, I see, I've been with Danny Spencer, who's a Melbourne boy. I've been with Danny for 20 years now. And, um, and Danny introduced me to a whole little bunch of, you know, Melbourne bad boys um, who are just the most incredible players I think I've played with my, in, throughout my entire career. Um, and that keeps it really inspiring when you're playing with younger guys who are, I mean, you know, they, they're still hungry. They're still really, um, yeah, very inspiring. And so, you know, it spurs me on. Well, you've always had great players in your band, haven't you? Oh, yeah, since the start, yeah. yep. Russell's celebrating like 50 years of the mm. real thing, but I know next year you'll be celebrating 45 years since Girls on the Avenue. Mm, correct, is yeah. That, is that the sort of thing you ever think about when you're on stage or anything like that? Sort of like um, these landmark albums? Because obviously people still have a, an incredible affection for that album and some of the others mm. as well, obviously. Well, the most interesting thing happened uh, about a week ago, just over a week ago, because... Um, the salubrious Dr. Pepper, David N. Pepperell, just wrote this piece, very eloquent piece in, um, uh, on Facebook regarding Main Street Jive, my third and probably most obscure album. And Dave was just raving and raving about um, Main Street Jive and, and shining a light on it. And then Stuart Coop joined in um, and all these other, you know, rather bohemian intellectual sort of music bods joined in. Now, what it means to me, because I, I wrote back to Stuart and I said that, like, need a visionary, I find it, so that's 46 years ago, and I was asking Stuart and Dave, like, the last line of need a visionary is, you give yourself a hard time, sister B, B-E-A. And I said to both of these guys, who are, you know, real music boffins um, had they ever thought about what the song's about and I, I finally said well do it's B Miles and I said you know all I get on the street every day is like hi oh, mate I just love that song you wrote about the hookers and it ain't about hookers but I never get anyone saying I love your song about B Miles or I love your song about Sylvia Plath it's always you know I love your song about the hookers but anyway <laughs> it's a living <laughs> so you perform the song don't you? Yes, yes, yes. So what's your kind of relationship with it? Um, I I don't think I would be here without that song. Um, I've never agreed with... I've had artist friends in my peer group who really resent, you know, being sort of, uh, you know, being, I don't know, shackled to their, their old heads and get sick of doing them. Now, I could well say that, except... Um, Look, there's a really good incident. Um, so Mick Skelton, my drummer, uh, plays with me most of the time and is playing tonight. He, um, I dragged him to see Bob Dylan um, about three tours ago. And Mick is not a fan. And I was, I was trying to explain to Mick that Dylan was really, gave birth to me, really. Um, euphemistically speaking, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so I dragged Mick down to Sydney Entertainment Centre to see Dylan.
and it was pretty awful, quite frankly. I mean, this is my demigod, by the way, so I, I have a right to say that. Yeah. And about four songs in, he was doing a song, and I got up out of my seat and went to the bar, and Mick came out and said, mate, what's up with you? You dragged me down here to see Dylan. I said, mate, I don't believe that. Mick's going, don't believe what? I said, well, when I was about 14 years of age, that song's all, it's all over now, Baby Blue, and he's doing a speed metal version of it. And, and anyway, and then Mick reminded me that one gig we did, I don't know when, but I was obviously quite inebriated on stage, where I insist on doing a Boston Nova version of Girls on the Avenue. So, the point of the story being, Mick goes, well, now the tables are turned, now you know how it feels, eh? <laughs> so I always play Girls on the Avenue to the very best of my ability. When I saw here a couple, you here a couple of years ago, you had a new album out, House of Orange. Yeah. House of Orange. Mm -hmm. How's the recording? Are you doing any more recording? Yes, but that's top secret. Well, and tell us about you'll it. Find, no, I can't. No, because someone will steal our idea. Now, I've... <coughs> um, okay, there's a guy, Terry Blamey, who managed Kylie Minogue, I think, for most of her career. And I was never aware that, that Terry... I mean, I did, I'd, you know, seen Terry at functions and stuff like that. Terry approached me about, um, oh, it's a long time ago now, 16, 17 months ago, because he's now, um, he's not obviously not with Kylie anymore. Um, and he's, I think Terry just wants, he just wants to do something he really, you know, there's no stress and something he enjoys. Now, Brian, I had just returned from San Francisco and that's all you're getting. You can mm. wait. We'll, we'll try and put two and two together <laughs> no, there. You can wait. <laughs> oh, we, we, we. No, because otherwise somebody will steal our brilliant idea. Okay. We've already recorded five songs. We've got another ten to go. Okay. So probably later in the year, maybe next year? I was hoping for October, yeah. probably. Are you uh, going to do any of the songs this evening on the stage as a preview, perhaps? No, it's a bit premature for that. Although I will say the band I'm using tonight are the band that are on this album. So, uh, it's, look, it's very retro. It, trust me, you're going to love it. You're going to love it, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. Um, we mentioned one song, Girls on the Avenue, yeah. but you've got a whole catalogue of great songs that people mm. love. That you, you get a fantastic mm. response from the audience, don't you? It's, yeah. Sometimes it's quite emotional too, I notice. Well, yeah, I, I, I think because um, another thing that I'm always aware of every night when I'm on stage is um, we're living in the, in the worst of times. I mean, these are really dark, horrible times that we're living in, and I think people just want to be transported back to a you know like the 70s and 80s when life was just so much simpler and I don't know the all I remember is sunshine and happiness back in those days and so now I, I, I do believe that I go and do these concerts like you know I was doing the State Theatre for 10 years and people would fly from Darwin and Perth and all over the place and became like a pilgrimage um, and it, it I really began to think a few years ago, these people are really wanting me to transport them back, you know, to, um, as is, I said, happier times. Is there anything wrong with that? Oh, no. Oh, no. And, and look, it's not nostalgia either. I, I wouldn't use that word. It, I think it goes a lot deeper than nostalgia. And the reason I say that is um, this weird little stanza there sitting out the Palm Beach Road I'm so drunk and the car won't go and you know a lot of nights when I'm playing and you know whether it's a thousand or five thousand people and they all take over the song and the way they sing it it's just like yeah I was there man you know well if I may sound my age at the moment um, back in those days mm. 
music meant a lot more to people. There were less distractions. Uh-huh. Didn't have mobile phones uh-huh. or iPods or anything like that. Uh-huh. And so the music was at the forefront, whereas now uh-huh. there's so much else going on. It's not uh-huh. necessarily... Yeah, and an album or a song would come out and that would be the centre point uh-huh. of your life and would immediately remind you later uh-huh. of the event that's surrounding uh-huh. that, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, I, I must say that what I find disturbing with um, especially teenagers because I, I've sort of inherited um, I, you know um, I've, I've been my partner of six years has a 15 year old daughter now the, the, re, the 30 second concentration span with teenagers um, I, if my band the current the band I'm was playing with me tonight if they're in the car with Grace the teenage girl and it's just like would well, you just stop doing that but have you noticed that? Teenagers play 30 seconds and and then move on to the next thing. What's that about? I will say in their defence, though, that mm. they will play a, a great song, rec- often recognise a great mm. song, they don't care whether it's blues or mm. reggae or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They kind of draw the line of country sometimes, but, mm. you know, I know from my, my experience. But anyway, there's, there are sort of pluses and minuses, but certainly I don't think necessarily maybe it's my perspective the music might may not mean as much as we're going to see from people in mm. your audience mm-hmm. tonight where you can really sort of feel that connection no but brian you know me i'm a subversive i've already got grace the 15 year old into al green oh, well, <laughs> jimmy <go>. hendrix <laughs> so all the good stuff yeah well we better let you go and get ready all for right. that show yeah. Richard. great to catch up with you again same here look Thank forward you. to this secret thanks recording project that <laughs> yeah. you just told us about you'll find out in a couple of months probably <laughs> okay. thanks brian down to the beach tonight fireflies dancing in the promenade light all those rock and roll bands used to really swing and i'd do the foxtrot with sweet christine speaking to me with a gentle hand fly on down to wonderland deep water
good, Brian. Very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going on stage tonight, closing the evening. Yes, how about that, eh? After Little Stephen. Is it after Little? I thought we were on together oh, no, around no, the no. same well, thing. Well, around the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it'll be good. Uh, hopefully there'll be a few in my tent. Full band? Full band. Yeah. yeah the usual good. crew? Yeah, you know, it's kind of, uh, Claude's been with me for 20 odd years and Mark's been there for a while. We're all four or five albums in. Uh, that's how I look at it. Somebody just said to me that me interviewing you is like oh, you've been no. interviewed by your mother. <laughs> like, so. What do you think about that, Brian? Because that's something I can't answer. I wasn't sure whether it was a compliment or an insult. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was an insult. But I wanted to talk to you because I've spoken to Russell Morris mm -hmm. and Richard Clapton, right. who are also on the yeah, stage on the same bill, yeah. It's like the heritage stage. Do you hate that word? I hate that word. Tell because, uh, well, here we are, you know, I know uh, Rusty's just got released his record this week. I released my record two weeks ago. Um, I noticed he displaced you on the chart position. Oh, well, that's how it rolls, you know. But that's, a, that's irrelevant, really, but at least we made the charts. You made and, and uh, you know, I'll call it a top ten. The um, I think it was twelve. 11. Oh, no, cut it out. Oh, he's only at 12. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> let's get, it, let's get down the things. You're not no, competitive. You can either. cut this out. But, um, I won't. Uh, I haven't got time. And Richard it. just had a record out uh, late last year. You know, so it's kind of a wacky thing. You know, it's a bit, for me, it's a little bit insensitive because I've made 20 albums in the last 23 years or something. So I, I figure that I'm still rolling the dice. But will you take heritage to mean something other than being vital? Well, you know, well, I, I think you want to be in the game. I think sometimes I'm not one of those guys that just kind of relies on the past. And I'm sure a lot of artists that release records today feel the same. You know, they just, it's, uh, they feel they've got a good body of work and, and uh, that's what you should be judging, that body of work. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice to have something in the past you know but that, that is the past and and when you're playing you kind of you, you embrace it all i said to russell that it's nice to see artists such as yourself having original material in the charts rather than looking there and seeing all these greatest hits collections that usually populate the charts. yeah you know like i, I know part of the deal for me is that i have to have a, a best of you know i don't know if that's coming out later on this year or early next year another one well, I've only had one, really, but and 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 of course you, you're with different labels, so different labels kind of. I had only one official um, best of, so um, uh, that was part of my recording deal with with Bloodlines. But you know, my thing is what you know what I'm what what is it that I'm coming up with next, and that that's that's kind of what I'm heading towards more so than anything else you know I think the past is the past I think you kind of embrace it but you kiss it goodbye I noticed that there could be a new Bakelite radio album coming out could be you know I've, I've been mucking around with that Brian you know and uh, it, uh, I've been toying with the idea of having you know things from my early youth listening to music as a blues fan it turned out that i was a blues fan i didn't know what blues was really it was just a whole bunch of guys that i listened to uh when i was 12 or 13 years old around that time and really enjoyed really enjoyed the music i didn't know about uh lonnie johnson or those sort of people or um blind willie mctell i just they were just 
records that I kind of gathered and like those I didn't I didn't know what part of scene it was in you know uh, and uh, so that that's kind of nice I, I found that that was a kind of a good thing to think about making a record like that of the of some of the songs and records that I used to listen to when I was that a young boy um, let's just talk about the fact that you have reached a particular age Thanks. and you, a mature <laughs> artist and you're why, back, are you, why are you doing this right but you're back with a record label yeah that? that's funny isn't that's it? interesting yeah and, you know like a, and there are some advantages surely well well there are you know like I have to ask myself: Would Citizen John be in the in the charts? You know, high on the ARIA charts and Australian charts if it wasn't for a record coming? I think they do things that you can't do as an independent. Uh, Sometimes, you know, occasionally the Cinderella story, you know, comes to light. But pretty much, you sort of. Uh, it's not just funds either. It's not about money. It's about connections, and I think just the individual bands don't have all those connections that might help you get into all the stores at J and JB all the stores and sanity and and they you know there's an opportunity if people like the music you know the hard thing is it's like anything you know the easiest thing to do is to make the music the hardest thing to do is to sell the music um, and, and it's the same with gigs too one of the you know, we're, we're we're off to Europe uh, in England on Tuesday and um, you know we've got 10 shows but we've got to fill the shows you know so it's kind of getting the gig is one thing getting people interested enough to come in is something else so there's a task there. So can you go to Europe and tour and do those gigs and actually pay for the trip? Well pretty close to it. That's pretty yeah. good going. Pretty good going you know but you got to roll the dice you know you, you take chances and you know I, I, I kind of this is, not, this is not about sleeping in a bus either or four in a room or something. This is, you know, we're, we're sort of senior. We have to have our own room, you know, and that, that starts kind of, you know, the dollar signs start going up. But you, you kind of take it on board and say, well, I'm going to do this. This has got nothing to do with just playing uh, in a festival. This is kind of like taking it to the street, you know, and, um, and seeing, you know, if some of it sticks and... And we go back and we go back to Europe in in September, and we got a, another three week run there. You know, so uh, and some you know sometimes it's just an audition for the next for the next tour. You know, you you would have to be one of the hardest working men. I was going to say in show business, but anywhere. Does this go because I know that even when you were a musician, you still yeah. worked at the market for yeah. doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Does this go back to your family your early days is this something that was inbred in you like this work ethic because like know. yeah it's do you ever take a holiday that's what I, I don't know what to do with a holiday you know i'd be thinking about doing a gig but uh, uh look my, my dad was my dad worked pretty hard he had two jobs for a lot of years you know and um in those days when you you know you make i think seven pound a week for both gigs you know so it was kind of Yet he managed to sort of look after ten children, you know. So maybe the, you know, um, just his tenacity was kind of rubbed off on me. I, I love playing. I love, you know, that's my favourite thing, and it's kind of like, it's it's not just 
it's not the gig it's a hobby it's kind of life it's kind of my daily bread it's all these things you know so um uh, uh, i i think that is my that that is my salvation um you just reminded me i've thought about this before when thinking about you my father never i never heard my father ever complain about any of his jobs ever in his whole life i tend to be grumpy all the time <laughs> yes, <you laughs> obviously do. Hasn't, obviously hasn't i haven't inherited any of his genes in that sense uh, was your father the same they just did their job yeah, and raised my, their family yeah my dad was great you know he's a beautiful man always had a smile on his face he was um uh, i don't think i ever saw him really angry you know maybe that when i tipped four liters of paint in the kitchen table, that probably, or drank some of his grappa, that might have sort of twisted his head around a little bit. But um, no, he was always a beautiful, smiling man. And, uh, and you know, some people have that disposition, and it's uh, with me. You know, I'm, uh, I'm thinking I'm getting grumpy, and I got every time I, I think about that, or you know, I, I've got to let that go. I just have a good look at myself. So you got to cut that out, kid. Maybe because I've got young children. You know, and last thing I want to do is let my little one see me sort of as a grumpy old geezer. So I'm, uh, my bring Uncle Brian to show <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Maybe, I say, oh God, I've got to take him to school and sort of present my dad, and he's going to get really pissed. And um, no, you know, so I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good with it, and um, I just kind of take things as they come. I think if you're a musician, working musician, the, the, you know, the, the one of the Ten Commandments is. You get used to disappointment, you know, and, that, and that's right, pretty high up there, you know. That's a very Catholic attitude. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. Well, I think on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Brian. Go and enjoy the gig and uh, enjoy you. your trip to Europe. Thank you very much. Brother Moses and Sister May went shuffling down the land. Keep them one step ahead of the law, taking each hour at a time. There ain't nobody in this damn world I'd rather be with than you. Said Sister May, reaching for a bottle, holding just enough liquor for two. Brother Moses, I knew him well. He grew tired as the years rolled by Long ago he raised a little money It was gone in the wink of an eye Sister made dark child of the city Wearing somebody's dress that's torn Fell for her man like a stone in the ocean It was raining on the night she was born and the pity, the filth and the grind That turns out to be your bed You can dance in your dreams And trouble seems to leave your weary